Jesus, thank you so much for that we don't have to be a slave to fear anymore. Thank you, Jesus. That is good news for us this morning. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for who you've made us to be, your children. Lord, I thank you that as we come here this morning, we come in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And when you are here, Lord, you can do anything. Thank you for what you've been doing in us already this morning. God, I pray uh, that you would continue to do something mighty in us this morning in our time together. I pray that as we open up your word, you would speak to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. That we would all leave here different than the way we came this morning. Pray that you would build our faith, that you would build our expectation for what you want to do in our few final minutes together. I thank you for every person in this room. I thank you for every person in this room, Jesus. Pray that we click for all of us today deeper. Really simply, you love us. We're thankful for that. We believe in who you are in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and give somebody a hug as you sit down. Even if you already sat down, go ahead. Give somebody a hug as you get your seat. We like hugs at this church. If you don't like hugs, just keep coming. You'll start liking them because it's not going to change. Go ahead and pull out your Bibles this morning. Open them up to Matthew chapter 9. I'm trying to give you a heads up before we get into it. Matthew chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible this morning, uh, if you don't like own one at all even or whatever, we'd love to give one to you. Go ahead and raise your hand if you need a Bible and we'll have somebody bring one to you. Or uh, if you need help taking notes or a pen or anything like that, just go ahead and raise your hand and we'll have somebody bring something to you. Matthew chapter 9 is what you can open your Bible up to this morning. Anybody ready for the Word of God? Anybody read your Bible at all this week? Pop quiz. That's good. You're allowed to do that as much as you want. <laughs> all right, Matthew chapter 9. We're in a series right now that uh, we are calling, What's the Big Deal About Jesus? We're in week four of our series. Um, what's the big deal about Jesus? And this question, uh, what's the big deal about Jesus? We're engaging kind of more specifically as a church uh, with a little bit of a, uh, a prequel or whatever, a preface to the questions. When it comes to your life, What's the big deal about Jesus? And we're sort of engaging this thought, what if salvation, what if who Jesus is, what if Christianity, what if salvation is more than a destination when you die? What if it's an invitation into life? What if it's more than a destination when you die? What if it really is, what if Jesus really is an invitation into life. That's where we're going with this series. And in, in our first week, I'm going to give a little bit of a recap in case you've missed some. We're only going to spend like 30 minutes doing a recap. So... I'm just kidding. In the first week, uh, we started. We talked about a conversation that Jesus has with his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, where he essentially asks them this same question: what, "What's the big deal about me?" He says, "What do people say about me?" And then, "What do you say about me?" And through this conversation, we landed on a couple of core truths that we're building on throughout this whole series. So, this is these are central thoughts to us as a series. So, make sure you get these down. Number one: Jesus is a big deal because of who he is. That's simple. Jesus is a big deal because of who he is. He is God. Jesus is God. He is not just a historical figure. He is not just a religious leader. He is not a mythical figment of somebody's imagination. Jesus was, in fact, a human being who did live. History is blatantly clear about that. But billions of people have existed and existed today. The big deal about Jesus, though, is that he is God. Jesus is a big deal because of who he is, number one. Number two, Jesus is a big deal because when you know who Jesus is, you learn who you are. 
When you know who Jesus is, you learn who you are. Not only is Jesus so significant that who he is defines himself, but who he is can define you. When you know who Jesus is, you learn who you are. Those are two core thoughts that we have been building on in our series. We started that with our first week. In week number two, we titled it, You're Going to Feel a Little Pressure. Was anybody here for that? You're going to feel a little pressure. And we talked about how in life you're going to feel a little pressure. And Jesus didn't promise to take all the pressure out of your life. And in fact, there's going to be pressure that you feel in your life by virtue of following Jesus. Jesus doesn't promise to take the pressure out of your life, but he alone can and does promise peace in the pressure. Jesus promises you peace in the pressure. That's a big deal. Week number three was last week. We titled it, He's Better Than You Think. Anybody here last week? He's better than you think is what we talked about. We walked through Genesis chapter 3 together and uh, we sort of were digging into what if God isn't quite as, isn't the mean angry God that maybe we've heard about so often? What if like Chipotle, he is better than we think? And if you were here with us, I, I would say, at least for me, I found him to be significantly better than I thought he previously was and I hope you did too. He's better than you think. Did anybody find God last week better to be or being better than you thought he was? Amen. That was weeks one through three. And uh, we're going to continue our series this morning in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 through 13. If you're there, say, I'm there. If you're there, say, I'm there like you expect God to do something in your life. I'm yes, I'm there. All right. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors, tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Matthew 9, 9 through 13. This is one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. I'm excited to talk about it this morning. We're titling this message. I want you to write it at the top of your page. Jesus is a big deal because he redefined religion. He redefined religion. Now, I'm going to preach this morning assuming you came to get something. I'm excited about this. This is getting me fired up all week, and so I hope. I'm just going to preach assuming you're ready for God to redefine something in your life. So I need, I need like a handful of people who are at least going to be along the ride. If, if there could just be like three people with me this morning, that's all I need. Because I'm going to preach like there's something that God wants to redefine in your life. Because there's some religion in our lives that may need a little bit of redefinition. And Jesus redefined religion. Some of you tried religion and you found it wanting because it doesn't work. You tried all the stuff you should and shouldn't do and it didn't work. But Jesus redefines religion. He redefines religion. I think that there might be just a few people in here ready to engage this question. What's the big deal about Jesus? Because you're ready to do something about it. Am I right? Is there anybody here this morning? We're going to have a good time. I'm going to preach my guts out. Because this is a big deal to me at least. 
He redefined religion. Matthew 9, verse 9 through 13. So what's going on in this story? It says, as Jesus passed by there. This story, uh, Matthew 9, 9 through 13, is the second of three consecutive stories here in Matthew chapter 9 where Jesus uh, gets in a tussle with some religious people because he's redefining their religion. We pick up the story uh, right before this. He actually, there's, there's a paralytic man who is brought to him by his friends. And Jesus tells the man, well, he heals him, says, get up and walk, and he does get up and walk. You've probably heard the story before, but let's just be real, that's crazy. Heals the man, says, get up and walk, and he says, your sins are forgiven. It says that he healed him and forgave his sins, not by merit of what the man had done, not by merit of the man's faith, but by merit of the friend's faith. That trips me out. And the religious people got tripped out too. They said, who are you? To say sins are free. Who are you to let somebody walk? And Jesus is redefining their religion. Right after this story, some more religious people, they come and they ask him about fasting, a religious practice of the day. And they ask him, why, um, why don't you maybe uh, live up to our religious standards of our religious practices? And uh, he's redefining their religion. He says, they're saying, if you're so religious, why don't you do all of our religious stuff? He's got, they've got a question for him. So the second story is Matthew 9, 9 through 13 is where we pick up. It says, as he passed by, uh, he sees a man named Matthew. Jesus is already a little bit of a ways into his ministry at this point. He's been teaching. He's been healing people. And stuff is going on. And so he is inviting this man, Matthew, who he sees at a tax booth, and says, I want you to follow me. He invites Matthew to be one of his disciples. It's a big deal. He says, Matthew, I want you to follow me, and Matthew follows him. Matthew is a tax collector, which um, basically meant that uh, everybody hated him because his job was to collect taxes for the government that they all hated anyways. And then the way he made his wealth was by collecting extra taxes, taxes over the top that he would just keep for himself. So people, he was, it was like legal for him to steal their money, basically. So if you're a Bernie Sanders supporter, you hate this guy. <laughs> Is that too soon? Or are we okay? So, Matthew's not a well-liked guy. He is not the guy that Jesus should have tapped on the shoulder. So, but, Matt, but Jesus sees Matthew. He invites him to follow him. Matthew agrees for one reason or another, apparently. And uh, he throws a party for one reason or another, mainly probably because parties are fun. So, he throws a party. He throws a party that night, and he invites Jesus, and Jesus comes, and Jesus brings his other disciples to the party as well. And, and it, as it says here in the text, it says that uh, Jesus was there and his disciples, as were many tax collectors and sinners. So all of Matthew's tax collector friends and sinner friends, because that's what everybody thought about tax collectors, all of his friends, they come to this party. In other words, this party was probably co-ed, and probably not everybody was drinking Shirley Temple's. So there's some things going on at this party. There's some stuff going on that the religious people didn't like, but there goes Jesus showing up anyways. Jesus shows up at his party. And, and after the party's going on for a little bit, the religious leaders, they don't pull Jesus aside. They pull his disciples aside, and they ask him this question. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? He's sitting at their table. He's at their party. What? This, this guy is so religious. This guy's such a big deal. Why is he hanging out with these people? And the disciples apparently didn't have an answer quick enough because it says when Jesus heard it, he spoke up. The disciples probably didn't have a good answer. They're probably like, I'm actually wondering the same thing. 
I'm a good synagogue boy, and I've not usually been to most of these parties before either. But Jesus speaks up. He steps in, and he saves the day. And he says, uh, I know basically that your religion, you, you can't make sense of this, but maybe your definition of what religion is and what it looks like needs a little bit of definition, redefinition. Maybe your religion needs to get reworked a little bit because I don't know if you see this, but uh, the healthy don't need a physician, the sick do. And I want you to go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. He throws out this crazy claim. Go and learn what this new definition means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. It's an incredible, an incredible story. It's an incredibly offensive story to the religion of the day. Jesus was picking up ground, traveling pastor, making a name for himself. People are starting to come. The religious people already didn't like that. And now they really don't like it because he's doing stuff he shouldn't be doing. And he's drawing crowds that they can't draw. And they're trying to figure out what's going on. They've got their religion, but Jesus didn't fit into their religion. Jesus didn't fit into their religion. Now, what, I, what do I mean when I, when I say religion? If we're going to redefine it, I think maybe we need a workable definition first. And when I say religion, what I mean is, a, is a religion is, a, is a, a dedication to a set of beliefs, ideas, or practices. Okay? Talking about just a set of beliefs, ideas, or practices. But Jesus is trying to show us, and Jesus' life, and specifically this story, is trying to show us that following Jesus, that Christianity, in fact, is no religion. It is not simply a dedication to a set of beliefs or ideas or principles. There are ideas, beliefs, and principles in Christianity, but they are not what make us what gives our beliefs, ideas, and practices power, validity, strength, impact, significance is not the religion, the ideas, the principles, and the beliefs in and of themselves. What gives them power is not them in, them in and of themselves. It is not this set of beliefs that we adhere to or these principles or these ideas that make us as Christians right and all of them as non-Christians wrong. This is no religion where it's just we're right, everybody else is wrong based on our ideas, beliefs, and principles. Religion in and of itself as a system is meaningless. And that's why if you've tried it and it hasn't worked, that's why. Religion in and of itself as a system is completely meaningless. It's completely powerless. Christianity as a religion, as a set of beliefs, as a set of ideas, as a set of practices is not simply a system by which we define God and earn our way to him. Our religion is our relational response to who he is. The Christian religion, the Christian beliefs, the ideas, the practices, the things that make up Christianity and following Jesus, they're not powerful in and of themselves. They're a relational response to who he is. It's a redefinition of religion. The only reason that these things, that this religion, that these ideas and beliefs and principles of Christianity make any sense is because there's a context for them that they fit into. God doesn't fit into them. They fit into him. The context for all of these ideas, principles, beliefs, practices, 
is that God is alive. God is alive and he loves you and he made you and he made me to be in relationship with him. But me, on my own, time and time again, I have completely rejected him by uh, my sin, by my indifference, my selfishness, uh, my pride, my arrogance, whatever it is, there's been time and time again where, where I and where you have completely rejected God and by doing so I have positioned myself in complete opposition to him. But somehow, in his great love, in his great mercy, he decided not to demand my life as a sacrifice, but to give his life as a ransom for my life so that I could be restored into relationship with him. And my Christianity, my religion, is the outworking of a relational response to who he is. That's the only context by which Christianity has any sort of power. Because if religion is meaningless and we're just another religion, then that makes us meaningless. But who God is defines who we are. Because when we get to know who Jesus is, we learn who we are. And maybe as Christians, we need to get really focused, not so much on our religion to learn who we are, but on knowing who Jesus is to learn who we are. I do not have faith in my religion. We do not have hope in our set of beliefs, our ideas, and our practices, our life, our hope. Every bit of our being does not have faith in our religion being right. We have faith in Jesus because he's alive. He's alive and he's God. This is who Jesus is. My faith is not in me and what I can do according to the religious doctrines and beliefs to earn my way to God, but on who Jesus is. The religion points to him. And I pray, honestly, that this morning is a challenge, that it's a wake-up call, that it's a, it's a coming up against maybe uh, the, the church norm or maybe the religious status quo and a challenge of things that maybe we've done as a religion uh, this whole time and we've been missing that Jesus is at the root of it all. Because what could happen with people obsessed with Jesus? Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. When the religious leaders of the day are challenging Jesus and who he's hanging out with and where he is going and what he is doing, they're saying to him, Jesus, you're supposed to be this religious leader, but you're not doing the religious things. And his simple response is, you need a redefinition of your religion, so I want you to go and learn what this means. Because this is what I mean when I talk about religion. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus, when God takes on flesh and bone, his message to us is I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This is the message of God. The one time he takes on flesh and bone of humanity, the one message he wants to say is I want you to live your life, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not your sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And the question I think for us is do you know what this means? Do you know what this means? That Jesus desires mercy and not sacrifice. This means that, that, he did not, uh, that, that God did not so love the world that he gave us religion. It means that God so loved the world that he gave us his son. 
It does not mean that, that, that Jesus came to give us religion, but he came to give his life as a ransom for many. This is what this means, that Jesus desires mercy and not sacrifice. It means that he did not come to establish religion. It says that he came to destroy the works of the devil. This is not some neat and tidy religion. He did not come to, to, to show us the religious way. He came to be the way. He did not come to establish a new religious greater truth, but to be the truth in and of himself. He did not come so that you could live a religious life. He came to be the life. This is who our God is. Come on, it's okay. Yes, it's good news. This is who our God is, that he desires mercy and not sacrifice. And we all need a little bit of redefinition of our religion. What could happen with a church captivated by the mercy of God? Not our religion. Not just our boxes of what people may or may not fit in. What I may or may not be comfortable with. What even I may or may not even agree with, but the mercy of God. What if we got captivated by the mercy of God, a little less captivated with religion, a little less captivated with our Christianity label, a little less captivated by right and wrong, and a little more captivated by the mercy of God. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So the question is, when it comes to your life, what's the big deal? What's the big deal that Jesus desires mercy and not sacrifice? There's a few things I want to talk about this morning. Is anybody getting encouraged yet? All right. I hope so. Like I said, there only needs to be three of you, so there was at least that many. When it comes to your life, what's the big deal that Jesus desires mercy and not sacrifice? The first thing I want to talk about is that Jesus calls you where religion disqualifies you. Come on, somebody. Jesus calls you where religion disqualifies you. Look at Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. Like we said, Matthew was the wrong guy with the wrong friends, with the wrong job, from the wrong side of town, doing the wrong stuff. And clearly there was more religious people in the crowd because they were there enough to hate what Jesus was doing. That Jesus could have tapped any number of the good religious folk. But apparently Jesus calls you where religion disqualifies you. Nobody else had Matthew's back. Nobody else wanted Matthew. He hadn't been to church in a long time. But Jesus calls you where religion disqualifies you. He stole too much money. He hung out with the wrong, the wrong crowd. But Jesus desires mercy and not sacrifice. And I just wonder if, I just wonder if a captivation with mercy might change the way that you see some people. I wonder if letting mercy Clean off the lens of your eyes may, may, may affect how you see some people. I wonder if a captivation with mercy might affect how you see yourself. Because the way you see yourself does work out to the way you see other people. And I hate that. I really wish I could love people more than I give myself grace. But I find myself judging people for all the stuff 
that I'm really mad at myself about. I don't know if you feel that ever. But I wonder if a captivation with mercy might change the way that you see some people, including you. Instead of seeing Matthew according to who he was and who he was not, what he did and what he did not do, where he did and did not go, instead of seeing Matthew according to his religion, Jesus saw Matthew according to who Jesus called Matthew to be. I wonder if he's better than you think, that maybe he could look at you that way too. I wonder if Jesus, when he looks at you, he maybe might not be most highly concerned with what you do and do not do, where you do and do not go. But I wonder if Jesus is mostly concerned with who Jesus has called you to be. And I wonder if it's that mercy that allows Jesus to call you where your religion disqualifies you. You see, mercy gives you a perspective that your religion keeps you from seeing. Mercy gives you a perspective that religion keeps you from seeing. It's because some of you are, are, are so stuck on how disqualified you are that you can't see the mercy that Jesus is trying to give you. So di you're so distracted maybe by, by how disqualified that person is that hurts you of your forgiveness that you can't see where Jesus is giving you forgiveness so you can forgive. Don't get distracted by your own dysfunction. Look to Jesus. <laughs> Look to Jesus. There's mercy. There's mercy for you. I think we spend so much of our lives, and, and we get stuck in this in our religious worlds, too. If you are, are feeling this religious grind, too, it's the same thing that, that we do. We get so caught up in trying to define ourselves based on our past, however good or bad that was, or our present, whatever our current circumstances might be, wherever I'm strong, wherever I'm weak. We get so caught up in trying to define ourselves by those things that we have been missing out that Jesus is a big deal because instead of trying to learn who I am by looking back at who I've been, I learn who I am by knowing who He is. This is freedom. And for some of you, you don't know if what I'm saying is even okay. It, there's no way. That doesn't sound right. But what if it's true that Jesus is such a big deal that when you know who he is, you learn who you are? What if it's true that his mercy is this good? Because when you know that he is merciful, you learn that you're not defined by all the ways you fall short. You're not defined by all the things you don't like about yourself. You're not defined by those things. It's time that we all get so, uh, that we stop being so fixated on all the areas where we have failed the areas where we don't make it, the things we don't have, what we can't do, and that we start allowing Jesus to define us by who he has called us to be. He's trying to lead you by defining you and who he's called you to be. Because when Jesus looks at you, he doesn't look at you and, and, and just, just call, you, call you weak, call you a liar, call you a bad, a bad spouse. You're not an addict. You're not a, a terrible person. You're not, you're not a bad employee. You're not a bad friend. Maybe sometimes you act like those things, but that's not who you are. And that's a little phrase some you need to start allowing yourself to say. I'm not a bad spouse. I sure am acting like one, but I'm not. That's not who I am. 
That's not who Jesus has called me to be. I might be stuck in a lot of impurity, but I am not impure. Jesus calls me pure. When Jesus puts that identity in front of you, it allows you to walk into it. Because our religion tells you, you got to chase that purity down. you got to chase that down of being a good spouse. But Jesus says, I want you to receive mercy. I want to make you who I call you to be, and then you can go from there. Jesus calls you when religion disqualifies you. Is this making sense to my three people yet? Because I can't tell, honestly, if it's making sense to me. I'm just kidding. Number two, Jesus takes you places your religion tells you not to go. Jesus takes you places your religion tells you not to go. And my three people wrote that down. And nobody else, because I can see you. Jesus takes you, your religion takes you places where your religion tells you not to go. Uh, Verse 10, And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I think we could use this at church. Jesus is at the party he should not be at. That's why all the religious people are telling you, you shouldn't be here. There's bad people here. They do bad things. You're a religious guy. You should be doing good things in good places with good people. This isn't where we hang out. Jesus, trust us. We're religious, and we know where religious people hang out, and that's not it. Religious people don't sit at that table you're sitting at. We don't sit at that table with those people you're sitting with, and we don't sit around with people who do those things that they're doing, even if you're not doing it. You're guilty by association, so let's not get too dirty because we're really religious and trust us, we know. Why don't you come to our religious party? We do everything right. At least we act like it. We could use this in church because the church is the only place that can rightfully live this out because of Jesus. We live in a world that everybody's judging everybody. And some people are trying to stop judging people by being nice, and that only goes so far. You can only not judge people if you're free. Everybody's judging everybody in our world. And even in the church, it happens. Rich and poor, both sides judging everybody. All the generations, all the different generations are judging the other generations. Oh, they're they're old, they're has-beens. Oh, they don't know how to work. And I'm not saying none of this stuff is true about maybe weaknesses that we may have, but we don't have to judge each other. We can maybe say, whoa, maybe that makes us a good team. Everybody's judging everybody. Black and white, both sides judging everybody. We're all judging everybody. And we need to be the place where we can all come and sit at the table. We got to start at the table. We got a long way to go. We got a lot of mess to clean up. And I'm not saying it's not there, but nothing's going to happen unless we at least first sit down. Because Jesus is going to take you places your religion tells you not to go. And there's something mysteriously missing from the record of this story. And I don't know why this got left out, but I 
I could have sworn that maybe there was a part where uh, it's fascinating that this didn't get included, where Jesus told all the party guests to like dump out their drinks and put out their hookah. And he told all the girls to go put on some decent clothes. And he told them to put out their cigarettes and he made them fill out a questionnaire about their race, their religion, their ethnic class, their economic class, who they voted for. And if their blue lives matter, black lives matter, or all lives matter, because I need to know where we all sit before I sit at your table. That's mysteriously missing. Something about Jesus didn't say, I need to make sure you fit into my religious system and my preferences and my comfort zone and my beliefs and even my convictions and even what I know is right and wrong. Something about Jesus, let him have enough mercy to know, you know what, you can come sit at this table because I'm going to the cross for you. I'm going to take care of it anyways. I'm going to get so captivated by my own cross, and maybe it would be helpful if the church got a little more captivated by the same cross Jesus got captivated by, and we could sit at the table with some people that are different than us and some tables that our religion tells us not to go because maybe Jesus desires mercy and not just sacrifice. You can't be my friend until you sacrifice where you're wrong. telling you, Jesus is going to take you places. Your religion tells you not to go. And that's hard, and it's uncomfortable. And you're going to have some interesting conversations. And you're going to be right, and you're going to be wrong. But can you just be merciful along the way? Jesus has been sitting at tables for a long time where religion has kept religious people from. And I wonder if it's time that the church took up the disciples' example and joined them at the table. They had no answer for why they were there. I don't have an answer sometimes for the places I end up, the decisions that I make, the conversations that I have, even the things that I celebrate in people's lives. My religion tells me that's not a big enough step to celebrate, but somehow mercy celebrates even the little steps. Maybe we could join Jesus at the table. What's the big deal about Jesus redefining religion? Well, our religion has been keeping us from some places that Jesus has been trying to take us to. And I wonder where that's happening in your own life and in my own life. What tables am I rejecting because of my religion? Empty system and set of beliefs and principles and values that mean nothing without the mercy of Jesus. And here's what I mean by this to wrap up this final point. Jesus gives you what religion can never earn you. You can sum it all up with this. Jesus gives you what religion can never earn you. We get captivated by the sacrifice, by the ways we like our religion. Us human beings, I heard, it some, I heard somebody say it this way, us humans are suckers for religion. And it's true because it gives us a scorecard that we can figure out exactly where we land, who we're above and who we need to catch up to. And we like that. It kills us, but we like it. I like. I don't know, it's ridiculous, I don't know. But Jesus gives you what your religion could never earn you. Here's what I mean. These religious people, they're coming to Jesus based on a religious system that had been set up by God hundreds of years before. A sacrificial system. And we could go on and on, for, on this for days. There's books of the Bible about it. So we're going to do like a 30 second overview. 
Their religious system was built on this principle. Okay, the wages of sin is death. We all know that. So there needs to be blood to atone for our sin. So God set up a sacrificial system, an offering system where there was essentially different ways that you could sacrifice animals so that the, anim, the blood of the animal would cover the sin of the person. And their whole system was built on top of this. And so they, they, they ended up taking all of these offerings and sacrifices and expanding on it significantly and building some religious system on top of it. But I think the question could be fair to ask, why did Jesus come to undo something that God had put into place? I don't understand how this makes sense. And this is the battle that these religious people were in. But the thing is, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. And they had missed the whole point of the initial sacrificial system. And they were missing the point of what Jesus was trying to say and who he was. I need you to just follow me on this. Can we go through a diagram real quickly? This is the Old Testament temple where they would meet with God, where God would dwell. And there was, uh, before the entrance, there was this altar of sacrifice. There was a bronze basin. Then there's kind of these different courtyards and tables and all kinds of stuff. And again, there's a lot there. But what the point is, is that they started with sacrifice to get into the place where, Jesus, where, where God dwelled, okay? And in the beginning, the, the holiest place was called the Holy of Holies. And there was this thing here called the Ark of the Covenant. A lot of backstory there, but essentially that's where God would dwell on earth with people. And the system was set up so that once a year, one guy, the high priest of the whole nation, could go into the Holy of Holies to stand before God on behalf of the people. He would do offerings, sacrifices, one time a year, and he would go and stand before God. So the people took this, 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 whole, this whole system and um, they, they, they built a religious system on it to, to, to start a scorecard, but maybe God was trying to say something different the whole time. Because when the high priest would stand before God, stand before the Ark of the Covenant, when God commissioned the building of the temple and the building of the Ark, he commissioned one other piece. And it's there on the very end, it's called the mercy seat. And on top of the Ark, there was a seat made of gold and God called it. God said, you're gonna build this seat. It goes on top of the Ark. It goes, it will be the very thing that I dwell on. And I'm calling it the mercy seat. From the beginning, the place where God dwelled in his fullness on earth, the mercy seat, the mercy seat. You know where he didn't sit? The altar of sacrifice. The mercy seat was always the place where God wanted to dwell and the, the, the high priest would come and it was, a, it was a place of judgment for the people. He would stand and say, he was standing as an example to say, okay, God, I've provided all these sacrifices, not, be, but not just me, but for the whole nation. Is it enough? And he would stand as a place of judgment for the people. And the judgment seat God had always called the mercy seat. His goal had always been that his judgment be mercy. Because the people missed the whole point. They thought that the sacrifices earned them the way into the mercy seat. They thought that it earned them mercy. But what they missed was the sacrifices were the mercy. The sacrifices were the mercy. Every time you put a lamb up on this, it wasn't, oh man, I hope I'm earning God's love again. I know I've been bad, but I got to undo all that stuff. No, every time it was, oh, I should have been on there. That should have been me. That should have been me. What on earth is God thinking? A lamb can take my place? That's ridiculous. There's one explanation for that. Mercy. Mercy. 
mercy. All along, every sacrifice was the mercy. And by the time you could stand before the mercy seat of God, there was encounter after encounter after encounter after encounter with mercy, with mercy, with mercy. And you could just stand there and he's like, yeah, now we're here. I'm merciful. And it says in the Bible that Jesus came as our high priest. He says that he came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He came as the sacrifice, which means he came as the mercy. His desire the whole time, we said it last week, God's desire has never been that your blood pay for your sacrifice. His desire all along has been mercy. He's pouring out mercy. He's pouring out mercy. He's pouring out mercy everywhere that you're weak. Like I said, I hope you did bring your weakness today because there's mercy in the blood. I hope you did bring something that you're struggling with today because there's mercy. I hope you did bring somewhere you screwed up today because there's mercy. There's mercy. Yes, there is a sacrifice, but it's not one that you brought or that you have to make. It was made on your behalf, and his name is mercy. Jesus desires mercy and not sacrifice. You see, his desire is to show you mercy, not demand your sacrifice. Because Jesus gives you what your religion could never earn you. We're going to close this morning by worshiping. I want you to go ahead and stand up. And uh, we like to respond to what God's doing in us. I pray the Holy Spirit is doing something in you this morning. There's a few ways we're going we're to uh, worship to one more song. And we're going to have some people standing over here that, are, that would love to pray with you. And there's a few ways that maybe we need to respond this morning. Maybe there's, maybe there's some religion that you need to ditch. And you don't even know how or what that means. And I don't even always know what that, I'm, I'm shocked at the religion that comes up in my life sometimes. But we need to just ditch it. We need to come to Jesus. And you need to just be honest and, and confess, Lord, this is where I'm, I've got my religion. This, these are the tables that religion is keeping me from that I need mercy to invite me to. You need to ditch some religion because maybe mercy is trying to give you a perspective about some people in your life or some perspective on who you are and you can't see it because you can't receive mercy because there's just too much religion. And that's you. If you need to get rid of, of something, if you need to let mercy work in your life, I want to encourage you to, to, to respond in this song or, or go have somebody pray with you. And you may need to give your life to mercy for the first time. You may need to realize that you need to receive the mercy of God for the first time in your life. You need to give your life to Jesus and confess, okay, Jesus, I believe you are a big deal because of who you are. You are God. And I've been learning who I am by all my sin and all my own destruction, all these things. But I choose right now to be defined by who you are. I receive your mercy. So we're going to worship. We're going to pray for us. I want to encourage you to respond. Don't leave without responding to what God's doing in you this morning. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Before we pray, I want to do something we do every week. If, if you need to give your life to Jesus this morning, if you've never received the mercy of God, I want you to go ahead and raise your hand right now if you want today to be the day where you give your life to Jesus. In any way that you need to respond this morning, if that's you, if you want to give your life to Jesus, or if you need to leave something behind or whatever. I want you to worship this morning. I want you to go over and get somebody to pray with you as we celebrate who Jesus is this morning.
Lord, we love you for who you are. Lord, we thank you that you are a big deal because you desire mercy and not sacrifice. And Holy Spirit, I ask for a revelation of the mercy of God over everybody in this room, over this church, over this city. I pray that we would be a city on a hill that can't be hidden in this world, that gets so stuck up in our religion and what we are and what we are not. God, I pray that we would be a city that demand, or that declares the mercy of God. I pray that we would take up your banner, God, that when people look at what does God want from me, he wants you to receive his mercy. That we would be messengers of mercy in Jesus' name.